morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the IAOMS community around the world. This is Deborah Zabladil with IAOMS, and we are here for our next installment of Lessons Learned from COVID-19 for the OMF community. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Sunil Annie Ruth from South Africa. Dr. Annie Ruth, thank you so much for being with us today, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Deborah, and warm greetings to you from South Africa. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this project. I've listened to the other uh, podcasts and have found great value from them. And I, I hope that our discussion can also offer some value and interest to all our colleagues throughout the world. I have no doubt that it will. You have such an interesting story and you serve in many unique and interesting roles in the um, OMF realm. So I'm hoping that maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the post that you currently hold and also your, um, your involvement with the South African society. So I am Sunil Aniruth. I'm a, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in private practice in Cape Town, South Africa, working primarily in the private sector. But I also uh, serve as a consultant uh, in the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery of the University of the Western Cape's Faculty of Dentistry. Uh, the two main hospitals that I serve at are Hruteskir Hospital and Tigerberg Hospital. And mostly the uninsured or the patients without any private insurance are treated at these facilities. I also serve on the executive of the South African Society of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons. And my post there is to negotiate with the fees and funders. And I hold that portfolio of fees and funders. Thank you so much. Very interesting. So you mentioned um, you were a consultant at the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial uh, Surgery and a faculty of dentistry at the University of the Western Cape, where you do treat mostly the non-insured population. So can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like in South Africa? What have the, the uninsured in your country experienced during COVID-19? So in terms of uh, the funding models uh, in our country, we have a, a private sector, mostly those that are insured. And then there is a much larger state sector where patients that do not have uh, uh, medical cover or insurances have are seen in that sector, the public sector or the state sector. So in terms of uh, patient care, uh, it, it is basically uh, those that are funded get much quicker and easier access to care. And those that have the public sector funding often have to join huge queues and have long waits. But that is because of the burden of the health crisis in our country made so much more difficult during this COVID time. And um, in terms of when, you know, the uninsured are actually ending up at the hospital, I would imagine, you know, if they're not insured and if they're, you know, worried about payment, et cetera, or, you know, long queues that, are, are they going to the doctor and to the hospital as early as they need to be? Or are you seeing people in later stages of COVID than maybe you would if they were all, you know, more privately insured um, as in some other countries? 
But you know, during the time, if we if you just concentrate on the COVID period, there was a whole restructuring of both the private and the public sector. And in terms of just the health matters, during that time and linked with the strong and the, the, the tough lockdown that we've had, only emergency procedures were being done. So both the public sector and the private sector had quite a reduced flow of patients through that time because of the preparations and the provisions for what we thought would be a huge COVID onslaught. That's only slowly coming back now at level one, that patients are coming back to the hospitals, but both sectors had to restructure during that time to allow for the management of the COVID patients in this pandemic period. Certainly, and you, I think you mentioned that in January of this year, um, you were part of a, a COVID response team, is that correct? Yes, uh, yeah, I can talk about that in turn from the perspective of the private hospital group that I work at. Yeah, that would be great. So during that, during the, during December, you know, um, sorry, during January, we've all come back from our holidays and whatever else, and there was this increasingly louder rumble of this COVID, possible COVID pandemic that may hit the world. And so during the late January already, our hospitals started to put into position some kind of an information program. So we reached out to the medical doctors and the dentists in our neighborhood and got the pathology groups to come out and do a presentation with regard to COVID because we needed to know what it was, what's the signs and symptoms, what's this kind of spread, because there was a lot of misinformation going on, whether it's going to be a flu, whether it's going to be like SARS, or whether it was going to be like MERS. And putting all of that information together, we set up an education or presentation, basically an information presentation, starting with the general practitioners in our neighborhood. So that's where we started in January already, just for that information, because it was a relatively new disease process that was going to strike us during that time. So this was then a multidisciplinary team that you were on, the, the response task team? Yes. So what we did then is we set out, after that, we had discussion and debate within our hospital groups, because at that time, it still did not look like it was going to be such a major catastrophe on the, on, at the, at the, in the world. Mm -hmm. So we looked at it, and so we decided to slowly set into processes um, positions where we could start a task team. So we got it, got together, and uh, had the physicians and the need to lead this team, together with the representation from the surgical units, and then the hospital administration, and then the nursing management team, to start looking at what would happen if this became worse because by that time now we were starting to get into February and the experiences from Europe were starting to become more and more public and that awareness was becoming it's going to be a matter of time before it hits you so we needed to set things into motion and that's what we started to develop early already in our hospital group. It, it certainly seems that you were earlier than uh, much of the world in terms of, of forming this response team all the way back in January. 
Um, I know that, you know, in many countries that, that I've had the opportunity to speak with, they were, you know, in the spring, somewhat left flat-footed, um, you know, trying to figure out the protocols of how to treat patients. So it sounds like you were a bit uh, ahead of the game. Would you say that? I must admit, we were actually being driven. There were a few of our anesthetists who were, who were quite, uh, who were getting a lot of information from their colleagues around the world. And they said, something is just not happening. That, uh, there's something that's happening here that we need to be aware of. And so I know certainly that my anesthetist was already concerned in December already. And, and, and I remember during an operation saying to him, you're just being paranoid. But uh, if I look back now, it was me that was being silly. Right. He, he, those were already in our hospital and so, and our physicians were very involved with it. And so once we put together that group and the information that came from the pathologist, it became, it started to seem necessary for us to have something proactive. And so I must admit the leadership from our physicians and our anesthetists is what helped drive it through. But they also made sure they incorporated all the other disciplines so that it became a group activity for us mm -hmm. at that hospital. And so sure. we could also get the hospital administration and the parent group, the parent hospital group, to also bring in that expertise and the needs and the facilities for us to start developing this group. Excellent. And then the, the work of the group, you know, say from January when it began to later in the spring, you know, when the, when the entire world, and I assume South Africa as well, was seeing, you know, significant numbers of cases um, on the scene, et cetera, how did the work of the response team change? Were you, were you altering uh, protocols, et cetera, as you went along, given what you were learning, you know, almost uh, in real time? Yeah, actually what happened is we had our team set before the first case came to South Africa at our hospital. Mm -hmm. So that was actually like we were... Uh, so, uh, some of the other uh, groups thought that we were just being fanatical or we were just being strange to have this together, but we were quite content with it. And what we started then within the first week, when the cases, when the first case came to South Africa, we started on programs in terms of uh, PPE donning and doffing, in terms of getting practitioners together who we thought may need some kind of training or retraining or refresher courses for emergency intubations and so on. We looked at sectioning our hospital to see where we could have a clear green zone, where we'd have a cautionary or yellow zone for persons under investigation, where we'd need to create a red zone for patients who would be COVID positive. We looked at restructuring our theaters so there'd be a dedicated theater zone where we'd be able to treat patients for emergency surgeries who were COVID positive, but also needed to create a theater zone where patients who needed urgent emergency care could be treated and safely without them risking becoming COVID positive. So we looked at all of these zones and training and getting the staff together, also looking at the, uh, the support staff, the nurses and the security and the admissions. So we started to put this into position already and making sure that we had, at that time, PPEs was becoming a problem in the world. 
to make sure that our hospital group had all the necessary PPE in stock or to, or to access it and then ring fence it so that we would have it should we have the crisis. So that was the plans that we had put into our hospital then already. Yeah, that, that sounds very well thought out, very comprehensive and very proactive. So uh, congratulations to, to your hospital for being uh, so far ahead of, of so many around the world. Um, you mentioned at one point during our previous conversation that you had younger members of the staff that were taking over uh, the operating theater supervi supervision of the trainees because um, high-risk personnel were being removed um, from theater supervision. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yes, yeah, so one of, the, one of the measures we looked at from the university, my involvement with the university was that each staff member had to, had to complete a, a questionnaire or a, a risk assessment questionnaire. And we looked at uh, various factors uh, ranging from age to other comorbidities to any factors that would put them at high risk. So those consultants who we thought would be a high risk, whether it be because of health issues or age issues, we decided to remove them from frontline care zones. And those consultants who were at lower risk would then take over their tasks during this time. So we could then still manage to continue with our training program. We could continue offering emergency service and rendering service and care. And so in that way, the clinic could still continue and be functional with the supervision of our more junior staff by some of the senior members who were able then to fill in for those uh, consultants who we deemed could potentially be at risk. Interesting, so interesting. Um, another thing that really stuck with me that you mentioned was just the emotional aspect of treating patients with COVID, what it felt like for you as a surgeon, and then in your, in your role on the response team, apparently you were um, you needed to respond to patients and their families where treatment was to only be palliative, is my understanding, yeah. rather than active attempts at uh, resuscitation and curative care. So how did that feel to you and, and what kinds of things, um, you know, sort of went through your mind as you were beginning to have these conversations or even thinking about having these conversations with families and patients? Uh, as part of our, our response at our hospital, we actually set out, you know, the doctors volunteered themselves for different roles. And, and so what we had is groups of doctors to say, if there's a crisis, this is the group that's going to respond. And we had structured them so that we'd each, we actually structured in such a way that we would give them two weeks off for recovery should they need to, because we thought there's a 14 day period you might need to if you are ill and you need to be out. We give you that time to recover if we needed you to um, start again. So we set that out with the doctors in terms of all of our doctors all volunteered and there was no, no hesitation. But as part of it, we looked at the scenario where there would be a time if our resources and our facilities became so overwhelmed and if we did not have that, we would have some patients who'd come to us where the prognosis would be very, very poor or hopeless. And those patients would probably only need or would only be given palliative care 
instead of active resuscitation. And many times these patients would be brought to the, could be brought to the hospital by family. But with the COVID protocols, families were not allowed to visit. And so sure. families would not be able to visit. The, the patient would not be able to have contact with the family. It would be a really horrible time not having that contact, not knowing what's going on. So we formed these task groups to respond, to be available to the families, to mm. be available to the patient, to liaise between the families and the patient, and to be available to give them support and to give them information and to be the go-between there. And also we thought it would be a horribly lonely and emotional task for one person to be determining who would be palliative and who would be resuscitated. And, and so we prayed, please do not let it come to this. I think all of us be like, I'm in this group, but I hope I do not have to face that. Thankfully, we never did. Mm. We didn't have to make those decisions. But I am sure that within our community of surgeons and uh, health workers in the world, there are those amongst us who have had to unfortunately face that horrible burden, that emotional burden, and, and it was a difficult and trying time for us. But we made ourselves available and we set out that group should that need be necessary. It, it really sounds like you, um, you thought through so many of the aspects um, of this disease and, you know, just of a pandemic in, in general. The, um, you know, the care, the safety. Uh, the emotional aspects for the patients and their families, it, it really does seem like it was very well orchestrated and, and um, envisioned. And I wonder, you know, do you feel should something else uh, come down the road, another pandemic or another um, wave of this pandemic, do you feel that you're better prepared um, than you know, uh, maybe some of your counterparts in other parts of the world or even in other parts of Africa that maybe didn't have this head start. How do you think this positions you for, you know, any future um, situation like a pandemic? Well, you know, Deborah, we were learning as we were going along. We were taking from all the different places that we were hearing things that were going right, things that were going wrong. And one of the things, one of the... Uh, one of the things we wanted to prevent, I think, in our hospital was uh, we were hearing how difficult and how dire the, the, the conditions were with our Italian colleagues yes. and with our Spanish colleagues. And we, yes. and, and, and we wanted to try and see if, or find ways where perhaps we would not have to go down that road. So we were learning and wherever we could get information, our team, our our physicians, and they've been superb, and our anesthetists, who were collating information all the time. We were disseminating it to our groups all the time. We had dedicated WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups for the, with information as it was coming, sending it to each and every one of the doctors in our group so that everybody was informed all the time. The communication was also open all the time. And we also had weekly meetings with the parent organization of the hospital group that uh, I belong to. So that it was a, co it was a coordinated 
action. Now, heaven forbid, I really do not want to see a huge wave like this or another pandemic. But I think we've, if something like this has to happen and we put into position um, ideas, facilities, and, and services, then we won't suddenly end up collapsing when the big wave hits. Right, right. And I think that's one, one of the things that we were thinking of from day one. And again, it has to be about uh, some good leadership around and people to follow it if, in, in the firm belief that what you're doing is for the benefit of everybody around you with the idea of nobody must be left behind. That was one of the things that we really we were really part of because when it came down to whether the state service could manage everything and where the private sector would be there, there was there was actually no major conflict in terms of that aspect because the private groups accepted that if there was a need for state patients to be treated in their in their facilities, they would do it. The doctors in this private sector said, we will work without need for any professional pay, but we didn't want to sign contracts because, you know, there's this controversy about national health in this country versus private sector and there's issues there, but that's a different debate. Yes. But not one of the doctors said, we're not going to treat these patients from there or we're not going to see them here. It was never going to happen. No one was going to be left behind. Everybody would get treated as we needed to. And so if we have those systems in position, if we can create this zone where there is a nice response team, and if everybody works towards the same goal for the betterment of all people around us, I think we can win that and we can be better prepared. But we have to have that, those things in position. Right. And hope they need to use it. Right, right. I think um, it's, it's, you know, out of something as tragic as this pandemic with so many lives lost, there have been, you know, some really um, heartwarming stories of communities coming together. And as you said, you know, it, this was not about private versus public uh, patients or health system. This was about really tending to the needs of those who were ill and, you know, helping people through that situation. So, you know, maybe that is the silver lining um, in this dire situation is that um, it really has rallied large groups of people coming together to do what is right and, and to really help others. And I can't help but think when you talked about how you all were WhatsApp, in WhatsApp groups and, you know, um, getting to each other electronically, learning things about, you know, what was happening in Italy and Spain and, um, and, and altering your protocols. Imagine if this was 20 years ago and we didn't have uh, social media and we didn't have, you know, the, sometimes we talk again about how that is such a negative in our lives and it's so distracting, but in situations like this, it can be um, incredibly helpful, it seems. It was, you know, the amount of information that was shared was fantastic because everybody who had read an article or had some information, it would come, it would all come through. For instance, that debate on the use of, uh, I'm becoming like Trump, I can't pronounce that word, uh, the use of the antimalarials and the use ah, of yes. other drugs. Yes, antivirals and... Yes, there yes. was a whole lot of medications. When do we need to do this? Should we be using that? Should we be using... Uh, uh, 
anticoagulant therapy early? If so, how much? Should we be using um, steroids early? If so, how much? Where does the intubation happen? Do you need to intubate? Do you need to? All of this information was coming through each day so that it didn't matter whether you were the physician in my hospital, whether you were the surgeon or the ophthalmologist or the max surgeon, or the general surgeon, this information was coming to you and we were spreading it with all to all so that it became, uh, the knowledge was there for everybody to be able to use and sift. Mm -hmm. So that was also important. I think that uh, uh, having that access to that was important and also to be reinforcing the protocols in the hospital and what was available and what needs to be done and where you cannot go and where you could go. All of those things helped tremendously to get that information through. And I think that helped the social media aspect from that aspect, from that part was important because we weren't seeing each other. Right. We were in the same hospital, but not all of us were at practice. Some of us were not going in, so we weren't seeing each other, and our only means of communication was electronic. That's right. That's right. And how about um, you know the public in, um, in in Cape Town and South Africa in general? How are they viewing the pandemic? And are you seeing masks being worn? Are you seeing social distancing protocols being followed? What what can you tell us about that? You know, by and large, it depends on where you're going to be, right? So. Uh, I've noticed uh, in my environment, by and large, most people have absolutely no hassles about using the mask and social distancing where they can. But there are communities where social distancing, distancing is impossible in terms of the way they are living where the people are. Yeah. Uh, some zones do not have running water and it's difficult for them to maintain that standard and level of care. There's zones where uh, it's just overcrowded and it's impossible to social distance but the use of masks i have seen almost without uh, almost everybody that i have seen are using it uh, at the beginning at the very beginning there was uh, some kind of reluctance and i think it may have gone towards some sort of uh, misinformation and even ignorance uh, for instance we had some groups who thought that covid would not affect them but again once it came through and the strong action by our government early, the strong lockdown early helped to get that message through. The, um, the uh, example set by our president in the early days of the need to use the mask and his demonstration of using it and all of the aspect of being part and parcel of that uh, preventative action was important in getting our population and our people to buy into that. And by and large, it is for as much as we can in, this, in the situation we are, I think that uh, it, it has been. If you look at our 56 million people and we have almost a 95% recovery rate and we haven't, yes, we've lost people, sadly, and our hearts go out to them, but we haven't ended up with our hospital group becoming overwhelmed, neither in our state or the private sector. We haven't ended up with a pandemic where we've been totally destroyed from the health perspective. By and large, we've managed to cope from that. And that has to come through from people being a little bit more responsible. But obviously, as we've now come down to level one, there is that risk of that resurgence. 
And we have to be cognizant of that. And we need to make sure that we don't end up with the second wave because of complacency. And that just undoes all of the hard work we've done over the last four months. Absolutely. So looking back on, on what you've gone through, you started this initiative in January. It is now October. What do you think you learned personally from the experience on this, this task force and, um, and you know, treating patients, et cetera? What, what have you learned and what do you personally take away from this experience? One of the important things, Jibla, is that I think because we, we were early in our involvement and we made efforts to be prepared, that has to be one of the most important things, the preparedness being prepared for any eventuality and looking around to see what is it that we may need to do and how we can put into uh, position ways to combat the challenges that come past our way. So in terms of preparedness is an important aspect. And I think that's been one of the, one of the strengths we've had uh, at the hospital that I've worked at that uh, even up to today, we still have a hourly, every hour, a, a, a clock goes off, reminding people to hand sanitize, wash, social distance. So we're continuing with that as, as part of it. And, and life has to change a little bit. But also in terms of personally, uh, having, to, having been forced to shut down for a little bit, to take a few steps backwards, it also makes you just change your perspective about, about life, eh? But thinking sometimes of just how lucky we are. When you think that your, your life is bad, sometimes you just need to look around you and more deeply and realize that some people in worse positions don't complain as much as you're doing. So I think that's one of the things I looked at. And I think oh, this is horrible. I actually think how lucky we are. But I think one of the things we need to do for this pandemic thing is also to be prepared and be ready to help. So are those the, is that the advice you would give to your colleagues if you were to um, offer some advice, you know, just in terms of how to be better prepared for what's ahead? Is it to be prepared and to be ready to help? Or, you know, what do you think um, the rest of the world should be thinking about in, in the OMF community right now? You know, you know, David, from the, from the, in terms of the oral maxillofacial surgeons world, right, and the protocols, you know, it's actually not so much that we have to change. We actually maintain most of those things in terms of the, the, the precautions that we take in the health and the safety and the uh, sanitizations and so on. And that's become the new norm, right? So actually not much has to change regarding that aspect. But we need to protect ourselves, protect our family by protecting everybody around you. And, and part of it also, we need to keep in, in touch with the new technologies, with the new knowledge, we need to stay with the guidelines. And I think to maintain this professional link and the professional memberships, because clearly, you know, the parent organizations like the IOMS can guide collectively than any one of us can ever do individually. Very, very sound words to end this conversation on. Thank you so much, Dr. Sunil Annie Ruth from Cape Town, South Africa. Really appreciate your thoughts, uh, your wisdom for the community, and sharing with us everything that you've been through and the 
um, interesting journey of the healthcare, healthcare practitioners in South Africa. Thank you so much for being with us today and we wish you all the best and, and safe travels ahead. Thank you so much, Deborah, and safety and health to all our families and friends and colleagues and the whole world. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.